One. Okay, go. Brown guy here with you, Steve Filson. We are talking with uh, and fully entranced in his conversation, Phil S. Dixon. And Phil uh, is talking about his most recent book that deals with the Negro Leagues. He has authored several more and is on pace to write several more that, that will be available. Uh, but, Phil, let's start again with the current book that's out, the title, and where the uh, folks that listen to us on a regular basis can obtain a copy and hopefully get it here and to their loved one here during the holidays. Phil, go ahead. Yeah, that's the Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, and has a subtitle of Race, Media, and America's National Pastime. And if a person wants to pick up an autographed copy, uh, they can go to my website, which is nlbalive.com, NLB, like Negro League Baseball, alive.com. And you can just go to products and you can buy it there, or you can buy it wherever good books are sold. So you just go online, put in my name, put Negro Leagues, and you will have your choice of places. You can autograph it. I'm just kidding. You can order it. It just won't be autographed. And, it, and you'd be willing, I'm sure, to personalize it to whoever uh, the purchaser would want the book to go to? Oh, absolutely. Do it all the time. Would love to do that. That makes a perfect Christmas gift, folks. Uh Phil, let's get back to our discussion. I was, uh, I'm was i sorry we had to break this up with, uh, in a couple of uh, different conversations. Because once I get started talking about baseball, it's tough for me to stop. Uh, I understand that. We were uh, talking about your travels. You have traversed this great country of ours and talked to all kinds of people uh, about the Negro Leagues and and. Rightfully so. This is a sport uh, that unfortunately was back during a time when segregation was pretty prominent. A lot of racism existed. Uh, and and yet uh, to have this uh, sport covered and researched and, and uh, uh, done in book form, it's, it's very important. Uh, because it makes sense, like we said earlier, that, that any fan of the game of baseball uh, would also be eager to learn more about uh, the Negro Leagues and some of the more prominent players uh, that were in the game back during that time. And I remember I, I put you on the spot, uh, and not surprisingly, uh, you, you were reluctant to name one player and instead, you broke it down into categories, which a lot of folks do with whatever sport they're talking about. And whenever they talk about, well, who's the greatest quarterback in football? Who's the greatest center in the NBA? That type of thing. But uh, uh, your thoughts on, on some of the more prominent and talented uh, Negro League players was was educational. I appreciated you mentioning some of the names I hadn't heard of before. But of the one or two players we have heard of, tell us everything you can about Satchel Page and how how prominent he was for so long as he was, because there were arguments about what his accurate age was, when he started, when he retired, that type of thing. But Everything you know about Satchel Page, please uh, now tell us about it. 
Yeah, you know, interesting thing when people think about Satchel Page in the upper Midwest, the game that they typically mention is the first time that he came into that part of the country, which was 1932. And the Pittsburgh Crawfords, uh, they came through Kansas City. And um, J.L. Wilkerson and Tom Baird, who co-owners of the Monarchs, they would also book teams in the different places. So they booked the Crawfords. And I think this might have been May of 1932. And they came and they played in Omaha. And then they crossed over and played in Sioux City. So Satchel's first time he played there is 1932 with the Pittsburgh Crawfords. But, of course, later on in life, Satchel comes to uh, Iowa quite a bit. Uh, You know, from Kansas City to uh, get to, uh, like, Council Bluffs and things like that, it's a short jump. You know, we're talking about three hours and so for a barnstorming team, that's nothing. But I'll tell you a story about Satchel Page. I was speaking in the Council Bluffs, Iowa, and a guy came up and he said, uh, I've got a great story to tell you on Satchel. He said that uh, uh, the Monarchs, when they would come through uh, Iowa there, uh, they sometimes would be traveling at night. So uh, his father owned a service station where they could gas up, and many times they would gas up there. And so he gave the Monarchs' owners a key. So when they would drive their bus through that area, they could stop at this gas station. No one's there. They could fill up their bus and then leave the money and keep on going. Um, That's the kind of relationship they had. But this guy told me one night, he said he got a call from um, some some, uh, people in town, and they said there's a black guy hanging out in the back of your uh, service station. So he said him and his dad hustled up there to see what was going on. And turns out it was Satchel Page. And Satchel Page, uh, they said, what are you doing here, Satchel? And Satchel said, well, I was going somewhere to pitch. But he said, I had a tooth pulled yesterday, and I wasn't feeling that well. And I knew this was a safe place to stop. So I stopped in the back of you guys' gas station while I kind of uh, refreshed myself before I moved on. Ah. So, so those are kind of relationships that were built that people rarely talk about. Wow. Wow. They probably wouldn't do that uh, nowadays, would they? <laughs> well, I, I guess nowadays you just go scan your credit card, your debit card. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Them, but back then it was a, a trusted situation. And the Monarchs, like I said, they were crisscrossed through Iowa and right around Omaha through there. <laughs> quite a bit. So they were coming from Chicago, they would come through there. If they're coming from uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, they're coming through there. If they're heading from uh, Nebraska, going to Chicago, uh, that area there was a very pivotal point. And so uh, Omaha is very important to the Negro League story, as is, and you can imagine this, Council Bluffs. You know, you wouldn't think of the Council Bluffs as being a a great, uh, a great important city to the Negro Leagues, but it was. I, I'll tell you another story. In 1950, matter of fact, August 17, 1950, Gene Collins uh, pitched a no-hitter in, against a team called the Rainbows in Council Bluffs. And that day, Ernie Bates was playing shortstop for the Monarchs, and he went three, three for four to support the no-hitter that the Monarchs won, eight to nothing. So those are little stories that... You never hear these stories, but they're out there. And those are the kind of stories I've been privileged to tell. Well, that's great. And it makes all the more uh, reason in the importance of 
of getting a copy of your book to where you you uh, recite those kind of stories and, and allow us to learn more about uh, some of our our favorite players uh, prior to them breaking into the major leagues. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that. You touched on on the relationship between some of the Negro League teams and in some of the towns and some of the folks that lived uh, in those towns. And obviously, and certainly unfortunately, back in those days, uh, segregation was pretty prominent and, and there were a lot of uh, issues. Uh, what other kinds of, of things did the Negro League teams experience uh, good or bad, but that uh, were, were still prominent back in that time? Well, well, first of all, they could play in those little towns, but there was often no place for them to stay. So if there were no black boarding houses uh, or and they couldn't go down to the local motel and, or hotel and stay. So they would operate out of the largest cities in Iowa, which would primarily be Omaha. It was, of course, it's in Nebraska, but its proximity to, Ohio, to Iowa made it a good place because they had places they could stay in Omaha or Des Moines. So they would operate primarily out of those cities. And, and, of course, Sioux City is another one. They would operate and then head up to, like, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and into North Dakota and things like that. So they just could not just stay anywhere because there was no accommodations for them. I remember uh, Piper Davis, the first black ball player who uh, was signed by the uh, Boston Red Sox in, in the late 1940s, he told me that he played in one town and there was – no way they could get to the next town. And he said they had no place to put him, so they put him in jail for the night. So, Wow. Yeah, it was so, but in certain places there would be, uh, you could operate. So like, for instance, say if you're going to be playing uh, Muscatine, uh, uh, Rock Island, and those areas up in that part of Quad Cities, you could operate out of Chicago. And that way you play the game and you could go back to Chicago if there was no place for you to to find lodging. So lodging was the biggest struggle. And, of course, sometimes they just spent the night on the bus and the next day you showed up at the next town. Ready to play. Ready to play and ready, and, and ready to win, too. How about that? <laughs> yeah, even, even more difficult. We are uh, pleased, certainly privileged, to be talking with Phil S. Dixon. He has authored a book about the uh, Negro Leagues. Phil, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, and as you speak to uh, sleeping on the bus uh, or, or certainly less than adequate accommodations and then having to travel and get out uh, on the bus and play a game, you know, day after day, uh, certainly – uh, the pitching staff was nowhere near, and, and this is an argument I have with anybody, and I'm going to pose the same question to you. Uh, back in, in that era, uh, pitchers uh, pitched every four or five days, and, and yet they were expected to pitch all nine innings, sometimes called upon to pitch the second game in a doubleheader kind of situation. And then you got today's 
uh, pitcher who arguably are bigger, stronger, there's better nutrition, uh, better uh, uh, methods of working out, and, and uh, uh, they, they pitch only into the fifth inning, and then from there on out, they got a setup guy, they got a reliever, and they got a closer. Uh, in comparison, today's pitcher is pretty coddled. And, and uh, nowhere near the stamina that the old Negro Leagues would have. And yet, uh, how, how do you explain the difference? What would be uh, your take on, on how the uh, pitcher for the Negro League teams was, was training and was rested or not rested, as opposed to these modern major league players who seem to to be coddled quite a bit. Yeah, well, you know, today the money's different. You know, if ball player's getting paid a million dollars, right? He wants to stay around making that kind of money as long as he can. Sure. So you're pitching nine innings, nine inning games. You're not going to be as round as long as maybe like Jim Cotton. He just got uh, enshrined to the Hall of Fame the other day when they, when they uh, selected his name. I've seen like Cot pitch forever, but he pitched most of that as a relief pitcher, not as a starting pitcher. So, right. uh, but uh, players like John Donaldson, uh, who who was starting to pitch around 1911 in your area, uh, coming in with the uh, Browns, Tennessee Rats, this guy would pitch games and strike out 20, 20. As a matter of fact, I remember one game he struck out 30 people in like a 15 inning game at uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So, wow. But John Donaldson ended up throwing his arm out. And and so a lot of these guys, they weren't pitching every fifth day. They were pitching every third day, especially if you were the premier player that they advertised, people wanted to see you. So you were pitching almost every day. And then when you weren't pitching, a lot of these guys played the outfield. So, uh, and that's the case of John Donaldson. So he's playing every day. So these guys really worked hard, but I think, you know, baseball has evolved where people realize that, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a great horse, you don't want to run him in the, the small races. You, and you want to run for as long as you can. That's why if you look at football, the quarterback gets a lot of the ink for, uh, you know, attracting people to the park. And so they want that quarterback to be as healthy as they can. So they change the rules where you can't hardly hit the quarterback like they used to. And, uh, and kill the kill the goose that laid the golden egg, right? Sure. So, uh, yeah. So it's I think you know in sports a lot of things have been learned over the years, but a lot of good ball players simply threw their arms out. And uh, well, another I'm thinking about another guy who barnstormed through your area against black teams, which was Grover Cleveland Alexander. This guy started in 1911, and uh, he went through his major league years, um, but. After the major leagues, he signed on with the House of David, and the House of David would come barnstorming. And Grover Cleveland was expected to pitch maybe an inning or so every night, and everybody came out to see at least Grover Cleveland throw one inning or something. And uh, so he was expected to pitch every night. And this was after nearly 20 years in the major leagues. Yeah, I remember that name. Yeah, you know, I remember you know, that name. Now I, I understand that that, that uh, Cooperstown is starting to acknowledge 
uh, some of the black baseball players, uh, as you said, uh, Buck O'Neill was was uh, recently inducted. I, I had the chance to meet him and visit with him, and what a wonderful man he was. Uh, yes, and and others much like him are hopefully will be enshrined in Cooperstown, and yet those with the names that are a bit more obscure, are they hopefully at least uh, acknowledged in the Negro League Hall of Fame there in uh, Kansas City? Yeah, the Kansas City Museum is not a Hall of Fame, so most of them aren't acknowledged there. You know, um, they're blended in with just all of the rest of the history. And unfortunately, you know, I... I was a part of this Hall of Fame process they recently had in that I was on the group that put the ballot together. And uh, we had several Negro Leaguers on the ballot. Uh, Buck O'Neill and uh, Bud Fowler uh, ended up getting there. Matter of fact, uh, Bud Fowler played for Keokuk, Iowa at one time. Okay. Uh, so, and uh, But he was able to get in the Hall of Fame. And Bud Fowler is a guy back out of the 1800s, so he might have played at Keokuk maybe in the 1880s, 1890s. So anyway, um, unfortunately, uh, they're not going to have this process for the next 10 years and looking at the process that we just recently had. We may have, we may be looking at our last Negro Leaguers to ever get in the Hall of Fame, at least in my lifetime. Well, I sure hope not. Yeah, it, it does look like that. And I can, well, it take me a uh, little while to explain it, but it all, it does look like that. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I had the chance to uh, uh, go to the Negro League uh, uh, Museum, Museum in, in mm -hmm. Kansas City, and I thought it was, you know, I was there. I was still going through things when they were yelling at me that, hey, we're closing up. Uh, <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an astounding uh, place to, to be. And the tour, uh, just for the information, kind of like what we're talking about, you know, things I had no idea, players I had no knowledge of. And, and uh, it was very enlightening, and I enjoyed it. And I, I have not had a chance to go back. Uh, but rest assured, if, if I do go back to uh, Kansas City, it's on my list of places to stop to, to learn more about uh, – what I, you know, I didn't get a chance to see the first time around. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I'll do, if you ever come to Kansas City, you want to come to the museum, you give me a call. And if I'm in town and you come, I'll personally give you a tour of the museum. Uh, because most people don't know that uh, I was one of the co-founders of the museum. Um, um, uh, in 1990, uh, it was five of us who incorporated the museum. And Buck O'Neill was the oldest, and most people know that he was associated with the museum. But the youngest guy was myself, and right under Buck O'Neill's name on the incorporation papers, you'll find Phil Dixon. So, so I'm still around, still telling the story. You know, Buck's you know been deceased since 2006. I get the honor of decorating his uh, grave every Memorial Day, and I haven't forgot Buck. And matter of fact, my next book coming out is about Buck O'Neill. Wow. Well, I'm a buyer. <laughs> hey, uh, so, Phil, it makes sense from what you just said that you reside in or around Kansas City? Yes, originally from Kansas City, Kansas. All right, so 
do you make appearances at the Negro League uh, museum? I, you know, occasionally I go down. Well, I'm at most every event that they have, right? Uh, but uh, typically, most people see me from out touring. So, uh, it's right. It's actually, uh, the last time I was in Iowa, I was there at the State Historical Society there, and downtown there at the museum. Downtown Des Moines, right? Yeah, in in downtown Des Moines, I came there and I did a presentation on Saturday, and then. The next day, which was Monday, where well, the next day business day was Monday, that's when they closed the museum for the p- pandemic. So I was I was there hot on the pandemic. So, uh, but I look forward to going back because I've always enjoyed uh, coming to Iowa. Such great history and 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 you know when you think about the Negro League story, a lot of times they're not talking about what happened in Iowa. You got to go to Iowa to make it come alive. So that's why I come to Iowa quite a bit. So I enjoy it. But do you uh, do you ever make an appearance at the Iowa Cubs uh, ballpark right there? You know what? I had an invitation to come uh, right before that second wave of the COVID uh, hit us. And so I turned it down. But I was going to be at the last baseball game. Some people from Sabre had invited me up, and I was going to come from that. So, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to go there then. But... Uh, I'm looking forward to coming coming back, and uh, uh, so we're hoping we're hoping 2022 is a little bit better than it's been for the last couple of years, and then I can get out and talk to people and uh, just have a good time because um, there's a lot of history that needs to be talked about in Iowa. And sure, there is. One of the people who know a little bit of it and and had a chance to interview some great players that came from uh, Iowa. Um, uh, one of them, and I, I mentioned Thumper Jackson uh, later on. Some people will remember him, uh, a guy named uh, Favors that I interviewed up in the Sioux City. Uh, Eddie Dwight's wife, who we married in Sioux City, was a good friend of mine. And, of course, uh, there's a ball player. I'm going to uh, mention his name. He was uh, he grew up in Mason City, Iowa. Oh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but uh, Joe Lillard. Joe Lillard played professional football and professional baseball and professional basketball. How about that? And uh, I've never heard of that. Yeah, yeah, All I've ever heard of is uh, uh, Neon Deion Sanders played baseball and football, and and uh, uh, Bo Jackson. And uh, I've never heard of anybody playing three different professional sports. That's crazy. If you look up Joe Miller, he played in the NFL. And he played in the Negro Leagues, and then uh, he played basketball for the Savoy Ballroom Five, which uh, were the precursor to the uh, Harlem Globetrotters. Well, give us his name again in the spelling. I know a lot of people listening to this are going to want to look him up. Yeah, Joe, J-O-E, first name, and Lillard, L-I-L-L-A-R-D, out of Mason City, Iowa. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, I just saw in the news the other night where our Iowa Cubs uh, are under new ownership. The, uh, they, keep, they keep the GM, Sam Burnaby, uh, who's a, a great guy, been around forever. I'm confident he would welcome the chance to, uh, to know that you were going to make a, an appearance at the uh, uh, 
you know, the Des Moines uh, Historical Society, and then and then get you to come by and and throw out the first pitch and, and sit and sell your book and talk with people at a at a Iowa Cubs game. We got, and I promise you, if that happens, I will I will be there and shake your hand. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to put that down because not only can I throw out the first ball and talk about baseball, but I'm a professional musician. I can also play the national anthem <laughs> on trumpet. <laughs> so, You're like a, a three-sport superstar. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, I'm having the time of my life, and I'm just using the gifts that God gave me to uh, be able to keep our great game of baseball alive in the way that I do it, right? So, you know, even in my last book, uh, the Dizzy Dean book, uh, one of the games that Dizzy Dean played against the Monarchs was in Des Moines. And uh, that day, Charlie Beverly of the Monarchs, who most people won't remember him, he struck out 15 of Dizzy Dean's batters, all-stars. They're right there in Des Moines in 1934. That's amazing. So you just get a chance to talk about all this great history. And... Uh, you know, it's it just it's just great. It's 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 it's, it's been a joy. I started. Uh, I just turned sixty five, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, and I'm blessed because I'm a healthy sixty five. But I started when I was actually doing history. I was about twenty two. But I started off as a kid collecting baseball cards, and uh, that's where I learned my first history. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I actually started off in 1964. I was in the second grade collecting Beatles cards. And uh, I took my Beatles cards. Now, Beatles, the, you know, the rock group, right? Sure. And I took my Beatles cards to school, and the teacher took took the cards. She said, these are collectibles. She saw them as toys. She took my Beatles cards. So I go back to the store to try to buy some more, and they're all gone. The only thing left is baseball cards, and that started it right there. Do you remember who you pulled from your first pack? Oh, man, that would be hard to remember that one. I, I can't remember that, but one thing that I do remember is that uh, by the time I reached age 19, 1920, I had over 100,000 baseball cards. Wow. And I had like the 1955-56 tops complete. And so people said, well, if you started in 64, how did you get those cards? And it was like whenever teenage boys in my neighborhood found out about girls, they weren't interested in the cards anymore. So I got their cards, and that's how I put together those old those old card sets. Bob, do you still have them? I have quite a few. I have quite a few. I've, I've Sometimes I've been thinking about bringing a display case to some of my engagements and just showing a few of the cards I have uh, <clears throat> that I've had since a child, which is amazing. Well, you better bring a bodyguard with you. <laughs> <laughs> Those are probably worth thousands. Well, I tell you what, uh, I, I've you know I've got some very interesting baseball card stories I can tell you. Uh, I think as a as, as a teenager, I wrote Cy Berger. Cy Berger was the guy who was kind of like the, the the tops guy. He was the the, the guy behind all of this. And uh, there was a ball player's date of birth that was wrong, and so I wrote Cy Berger to tell him to correct it. So. I don't know how many kids can say they actually wrote Cy Berger, but I was one of them. Wow. See, this is a whole new conversation. <laughs> in your travels, and in addition to the card collecting, and and uh, and I mentioned in our last, our first little telecast that I collect sports memorabilia myself. Ah, I, okay. 
I sold most of my cards to further my collection of, I, I collect uniforms and broken bats and game-worn caps and uniforms and that kind of thing and, and some signed baseballs here or there. Uh, have you had a chance to, to collect other memorabilia in your travels and meetings of, of other Negro League players, that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Hey, we've only got 30 seconds left, guys. Uh, we're talking with Phil Dixon. You want to stay on for another episode, Phil? We'll do one more. All right. We got one more coming. 